Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers, using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like School districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice? curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education and Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow, and I'm so happy you are here. Oh my gosh, I am excited for this week's episode because I am totally a fan girl of Hannah over at My Literacy Space. A couple of years ago, I started following Hannah. I'm sure I found their website by, or their Instagram handle rather, by simply searching for information about literacy instruction, science of reading, multi-sensory learning, that sort of thing. And I have to say that Hannah has some of the most creative, simple, wisdomful nuggets about literacy. And I just think that what they put out into their space on, on Instagram is like, so incredibly and quickly hopeful. So I was super duper excited to meet Hannah and in person, as we say on our recording with, I say in person with finger quotes, and I am really excited for you to join in and to listen to this episode as well. I want to tell you a little bit about Hannah first. Hannah has been a literacy tutor and consultant in Calgary, Alberta, Canada since 2008. Hannah is passionate about sharing structured literacy tips, multi-sensory activities, and their favorite picture books to educators and caregivers. Making learning fun and engaging doesn't mean that we forget to follow the science of reading for evidence-based skills and strategies. I am so excited for you to hop into this episode. Let's hit it now. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Ashley. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. We were just talking before we hit record about how we're like internet friends and it's so fun to talk to people in person. So I'm super pumped about this. No, it's great. It's great to put the face and the voice and all those things all together and be like, yeah, I know you. (laughs) That's awesome. Yes, that's exactly it. Why don't we start off by just having you introduce yourself to my people. All right. So my name is Hannah. My pronouns are they, them. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and I run a operate a tutoring company and consulting. So I tutor currently over 30 students and I do one-on-one literacy training with them. So we're really supporting reading and spelling and they come to my house and we play with words and we read and we spell. And then I provide workshops and webinars also for caregivers and educators in the science of reading, structured literacy. And my sort of, it's not a side hustle. It's a huge part of what I do is also being a book reviewer. And so I work with publishers and they send me books. And so with a group of people, we pour through the pages and illustrations, and we're really trying to share the best work that's inclusive. I might use books that I can share that are could be used as a mentor text in a literacy session. And so I'm a bit of a word nerd. <laughs> Love. We need more word nerds in, in the world. That's such good work that you do. 
I'm curious. I don't think I know how you like what your background is. How did you end up doing this? Were you a teacher? So I was an ed assistant, which is like a paraprofessional in schools. And I a long time had worked as a speech language assistant for many years and worked a lot with speech language pathologists. I worked a lot with kids that had articulation, language disabilities, dyslexia. I worked a lot in classrooms that needed behavior extra behavior support because that was often piggybacking on their lack of knowledge in literacy. So it was, I did both. And then my school board created a position for me because I didn't want a teaching degree specifically because I didn't want to be a classroom teacher. I specifically Uh wanted to really work with kids who were having some social emotional regulation issues, often related to learning difficulties and disabilities. And so I did specific training for that. And then they create a position where I was working with the speech language pathologist, the resource teacher, the principals, and we created a learning center in our school. And then that has evolved where I started tutoring on the side outside of working for the school board. So I worked for the school board for about 15 years in various different ways and then have been tutoring since 2008. I'm like extra glad that I asked that. I I asked out of curiosity, but I have a course and a program that helps people learn how to become special education advocates. And the thing that I'm constantly telling people is do it, try it. If you're passionate about it, do it. And I'm so glad that you answered that question for me because like, here's the thing, you don't have to be a teacher or a librarian or a speech pathologist to really dive deep into how children learn to read and to supporting children in reading or in advocacy or whatever it is. You're living the dream. <laughs> I'm living those words every day. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about multisensory instruction. And the way this works, friends, is I write people when they're going to come on the podcast and I say, there's a kind of list of things that I'm interested in, or is there a list of things that you like to talk about? And then we suss it out a little bit. And when Hannah suggested multisensory instruction from her list of topics, I was like, you know, what's funny is I don't think I've ever talked about this on the podcast. And it's something that we talk about at nine to five, Monday to Friday, a thousand times. I'm really excited about talking about multisensory instruction. Before we get there, this all kind of ties to the science of reading. And I think with the podcast, Sold a Story, and the reporting that kind of led up to the culmination of that podcast, and really the world of education since the 1980s, we've talked about the reading wars. So can you take us on your path to supporting multisensory reading, supporting the science of reading? Did you ever take a pit stop at balanced literacy, the QEN strategy? Talk to us about how that worked for you. I sure did, unfortunately, take a pit stop in the three QEN. That was what our school board has been doing for years. In fact, it still is doing that. And so there's teachers around, other educators who are really making that shift away from balanced literacy, which we have to always point out is based on whole language approach, the looking at the word as a whole rather than every specific part. When I was working with a specific school, they had done a whole bunch of assessments and we realized that a massive percentage, over 50% of kids in most of the grades, it was a K to six school, were 50% of them or higher in some of the grades were below a standard standardized test for reading levels, reading skills. And so we started thinking about like why, and we couldn't quite 
pit. I was talking to the speech pathologist that I was working with. I rang up different literacy specialists and they all just kept saying, nope, it's just the demographic of the school or it's just the kids there. Oh, we've got a lot of behaviors at that school. They kept giving all of these like almost pat answers. And it was like, they didn't really know because we know that 95, 90 to 95% of kids can actually, they have the cognitive capacity to be able to read. So I'm like, okay, so how come in my whole school, we don't have one single classroom that has 90 to 95% of kids actually reading. So this yeah. is like, there was a big disconnect. So as P and I kept looking through material and we kept coming up some good strategies, but not a lot of skills that we're talking. So the strategies that we would be, oh, you put your lips together and make the first part of the word and then guess the ending. And you're like, okay, that kind of made sense a little bit. And then you're like, but it's breaking down. I get it. Put your mouth. If the word was bat, right. Okay. Put book and then you just fake it till you make it. That part didn't right. make sense. Right. So the yeah. first part was okay from a speechy part, let's make your mouth make that sound. But then it was like, but guess the ending. So there was a disconnect. Another one was use the pictures as a clue and you're okay. The pictures are there. And then I started realizing, but a lot of the illustrations don't help me with adjectives. They don't help with a preposition. They don't help with an adverb. They help with some of the basic nouns. Yes. And not a lot else. <laughs> you yeah. know, they might help you understand the mood of the page or how a character might be feeling or the setting or what they're, what that character is looking or maybe a teeny bit of action, but that's it. So again, that began to break down for me. And if you have the skills to actually identify the mood. Or, right. to, or if you have the experiences to understand what's happening in that picture. If you have never been to a baseball game, you can't read about a baseball game because you can't interpret the picture. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then even thinking of the, the miscue of, did they get it from the context? Did they use pony instead of horse? But didn't change the meaning of the sentence, but it was the wrong word, which if you're reading pony instead or reading horse instead of pony, you like almost know none of the letters correspond to the sounds right? yeah so you're kind yeah. of like what well, well, that also began to break down so I was like okay so this was working for some kids but not all so as I started to learn new things and there was a great quote that sort of helped me shift my sort of understanding and I'm not going to quote it verbatim but it was basically if you teach a kid 10 words they will know 10 words, right? They've memorized those 10 words, maybe if they have good memory skills, right? Working memory. But if you teach kids 10 sounds, you can apply it to over 26,000 words. And yeah. I was like, okay, hold up. I don't, what's, the, there's a massive difference between teaching the whole word versus teaching the word parts that they can apply to something else. I was even saying to a student last night, we were talking about the suffixes that make a word plural. So suffix S, suffix ES, and suffix IES. And I said, have you ever learned why we use which one of the spellings and what, what does plural mean? They didn't, under, they didn't know what plural meant. They didn't know yeah. the definition of plural. Didn't know that an S on the end of the word was a suffix, which is a morpheme that holds important meaning in the word. Like yeah. they were just randomly fumbling through words and, and when we even think of like the suffix S on the end of a word in cats compared to dogs, that suffix S is making two different sounds. That suffix S is representing two specific things 
we read it differently, but it means the same thing. It's impacting kids' spelling. It's impacting their reading, which is impacting comprehension because they didn't understand how to change the spelling and then what that spelling pattern meant. So it was little things as I started to really explicitly learn those things that I was like, oh, of course they're not reading because they haven't been explicitly taught because nobody in the building, none of the adults in the building have been explicitly taught how to provide that <laughs> structured instruction to the kids. Agree. And yes, I, that is so brilliant and so wise. And that's, and that was the experience of so many people that were trying to teach reading at that time. I then take it to the next level and think about kids with intellectual disabilities or with plurals kids with hearing impairments. So my child has both. He has Down syndrome and he has conductive and sensory neural hearing loss, not significant enough to aid him because hearing aids just drove him crazy from a sensory standpoint. It's another story, but he doesn't hear plurals. And so if he was not taught reading with the science of reading, he would never know that concept of, hey, guess what? Your language has a mechanism to convey more than one. He would never know that because he doesn't hear it. He calls cheese, the thing you put on tacos, he calls it chi. Because he doesn't hear that Z sound, the frequencies, I think too high or too low, I don't remember, to hear it. Now, can he spell at the end of cheese? Yes, but that's something that he's had to been taught. So yeah, when that when that horse pony example came up in something, I don't know, podcast or something that I was listening to or reading, I thought, okay, if you call a horse a pony, then you can never read horse shoe because pony shoe doesn't exist. Yeah. Yeah. And you can never read horticultural because you don't get the whore sound, even though that's not a prefix that applies the same way, you don't get that idea. So that the 26,000 words that you could make out of 10 sounds is mind boggling. It's It's just crazy. It's it's life changing, right? It's giving the access to the code. Like when we talk about reading, we talk about decoding. When we talk about spelling, we talk about encoding. They can't crack that code They will not be proficient at decoding and encoding without the code. Yes. So here we were expecting our expectations are up here. And yet our information that we're giving to kids is significantly, drastically different, which makes literacy a social justice issue because kids have to have access to that information. Adults have to have access to that information. And what we've been sold and taught and provided materials in the school system is information that is not backed by the science of reading. And that's an epic fail. Epic, epic fail. It is. I couldn't agree with you anymore. So then that leads us to the science of reading. And maybe we can talk about science of reading, multi-sensory reading instruction. What are those concepts and kind of how do they look? What's different? So I think there's a big misconception about what the science of reading is. So the science of reading is the branch of knowledge. It's this big bunch of evidence that has been given to us for decades. That was also something that was shocking to me, right? Like I was instructing in school systems for 15, 20 years, and I, that, that information was out there and no one was, or limit, I'm not going to say no one, but where I worked, no one was <laughs> tapping into that knowledge and yet it was there. So right. that- 
that science of reading is the group of knowledge, this big base of knowledge based on evidence over decades all around the world from multiple neuroscientists, psychologists, education, all these different pieces have brought this big research bundle to us. So we have to tap into that. And what they're telling us is they know that the brain learns to read one way. All brains read the same way. So we're really having to rewire the brain because that's not, reading is not a natural skill set. That's a human invention. We, we have oral language, being able to communicate and information was passed on by storytelling. It was not passed down by symbols, letters on a page in a book. It is now, and it is yeah. very much of what, you know, how information is put out into the world. Um, so they've given us this structured literacy, which is explicit, systematic, cumulative, diagnostic, and it is a way to specifically and explicitly teach the brain how to read because we're literally rewiring parts in our brain and connecting them so that they actually connect the symbol, the letter with the sound, which has to be based on that sort of mental image of what is a cat. Well, if I said cat, actually you and I would both have an image pop up into our brain might look different. I might be picturing a tabby cat and you might be picturing a white Persian cat, whatever. We have cat in our brain. We have to know that's what it looks like. We have to now know the word cat. Now we have to understand that cat is broken up into three sounds, the k and the t. And then we have letters that represent those sounds. So all different parts of our brain have to be engaged at the same time to be able to read and spell the word cat because we have to have some background information. Cat would mean nothing to a child that didn't know what a cat was. And the so cool thing is that if we, because we have scientists that have studied this, Sally Shayowitz really dove into those functional MRIs when she really started to look at dyslexia to say, oh my gosh, like the same parts of the brain are lighting up when functional readers are reading and the same parts of the brain are lighting up when people are not functionally reading and are trying to read. And so what do we do to rewire those pathways to get this subset of people to become more similar to the functional readers? That's so easy. It's not because functional <laughs> eyes are like voodoo, wacko, wacko. Thank God there's smart people out there. But how crazy that they put some electrodes on somebody's head, stuck them in a magnet and they're like, uh, Eureka, here's how you read. It's so cool. Yes. So, so I think then, the, con the connection then, I think, between when we're thinking of the science of reading and this evidence-based information of structured literacy is how do we do that then? Right. When we're saying it has to be explicit, when we're saying it has to be systematic, when we're saying it has to be cumulative, how do we do that? And yeah. I'm going to always say that there is not one specific program that will always get it. There's always going to be holes because the programs are human inventions, <laughs> right? We're trying to tap into those. So the biggest thing is always looking at whatever method you're going to pitching to maybe purchase. Do, is it aligned with the science of reading? Is it, does it have a specific scope and sequence? Are there pieces of it that are really going to be so explicit and systematic, we've got this specific way that we're going to teach it. And it's building on past skills and looping them in. So when you're thinking about, okay, so in English, we have 26 letters of the alphabet, but we have 44 speech sounds. We have 250, 250 graphemes, 
that's different ways to spell those 44 sounds. A lot of schools are still only targeting those 26 letters, even in kindy. Yep. In kindergarten, they're still only doing a letter of the week, which when you think about it, our goal is to get them to crack the code. But if they are only knowing, let's say six weeks, we've got A, B, C, D, E, F. How many words can you build with those sounds? In six weeks, they're not able to build almost any words. Right. And no words that have value to them. Right. No words that they can use and recognize in the world. So they're especially not. Especially if you go in that order. Especially if you go in that <laughs> order. But that's what a lot of people are doing. Like, yeah. I see that all the time. Whereas if I can teach some of the commonality pieces of it. So if I think about sounds, okay, I want to give students the best, most efficient access to sounds. We can think about manner of articulation. This is the way that our voice is producing these sounds. So in English, we have sounds that we have a voice on feature and a voice off feature. That's a multi-sensory approach to instruction for sounds that we use in English all the time. So what do I mean by that? If we look at the sounds or the letters P and B, we actually form those letter sounds exactly the same way with our mouth, but one sound is a voice on sound, one sound is a voice off. So the P spells the sound. So you're putting your lips together, you're puffing it out, but your voice is off for that sound. So there's no vibrations of your vocal cords. They're at rest and all the air from your diaphragm is able to come through. It's voiceless. It's like a whisper sound. But if I turn my voice on, it's like a hum. You can feel it vibrating in the front of your throat. And I say B spells my voice is on and you can hear it has a different quality to it. If I taught those two sounds together, I could teach those sounds in one session. And then the next day, teach another two sounds that have those articulation properties that are similar. In four, three, four, five sessions, I can have them reading CVC words, which is a consonant vowel consonant word. In the same six week chunk of time, I can have them reading a whole bunch of words rather than only knowing A, B, C, D, E, F. And that's right. kind of it, right? That's, so, it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a tiny shift, but you can't make that shift without knowledge. Yeah. So, that's where it has to be systemic and systematic yeah. and very calculated. Yeah. That's where that comes into it. I always, when I start geeking out about science or reading with people, I always go back to my, so in college, I didn't take math. I didn't want to have to take calculus. So I took, for formal reasoning, I took linguistics yeah. and my linguistics teacher was the weirdest guy in the universe. But I remember when we were learning about additives and bilabial sounds and all of those things, I remember thinking back to my mom, who was like an old school phonics centric first grade teacher and being like, oh yeah, this is what my mom taught. This is so natural to me. It's so obvious that this is the way our language is based. And linguistics ended up to be one of my favorite classes, even though the teacher, well, do in part to the fact that the teacher was really wacky. Yeah. So yeah. I love and, thinking about that stuff. Yeah. So when we're thinking then coming back to that multi-sensory piece, that's just one piece, right? I can teach those sounds as being voice on, voice off, but those oral kinesthetic cues of put your lips together, puff them out, all of those pieces, that's multi-sensory learning. Yeah. I'm explicitly teaching something 
using the body. So I could, sometimes it was even really difficult when we were masking and things like that, or when kids, even not through the computer, sometimes I do a lot of online tutoring. And so to have a video or something else, or to have them have a mirror beside them, or if we're in the same room, a mirror is a great tool because they're watching their own reflection back. So it's a visual thing, but then they're able to pinpoint a little bit. It makes it a little bit more personal rather yes. than me coming up with a big mouth <laughs> to the, the camera on the computer, things like that. So we're thinking of that's one piece. I wanted, I wanted to think about like misconceptions even yeah. about multi-sensory learning. Can we talk yeah. about Do I it. Think, okay. Yeah. Cause I think this is what I get. Maybe multi-sensory learning gets a bad rap or people still believe. So here's the first thing. One of the things that has been debunked is this idea, and it is called a neuromyth, this idea that we have learning style. So we used to do all this exploration of what is your learning style? And then the educator or even the family, whoever caregivers in whatever space are like trying to only teach using just visual or yes. only teach using kinesthetic, or only teach using that sort of one modality, when really that's actually been debunked. We don't, that is not a thing. We might have a preference of understanding information, but we know through all kinds of different research that if we can overlap some of those modalities and combine them together that we're actually activating multiple parts of the brain simultaneously. So first of all, let's debunk that learning styles is a neuro myth. It's something that was taught <laughs> just like balance reading as this is it. And it wasn't actually based on science whatsoever. It's a cutesy little idea. So that's myth number one. And it and doesn't then, make any sense with the human experience either. When I right. was I, like, I'm of that era. And I'm like a little bit, I'm deep into balanced literacy. So I graduated with a teaching degree in 2000. So I'm like in the middle of balanced literacy. And I remember my mom saying, this is hogwash, but I was a German teacher. So I just was on the periphery of that. But the learning profile, I remember thinking like, but I'm, I'm legally blind and I'm good at language. So like I, I would say I'm an oral learner from that profile stuff, but like, it also really works for me to do it. So yeah, it helps me to teach it and to hear it. And I do have really good verbal comprehension. If you look at my test scores, but like part of my profile also is doing, I'm an active person. I have ADHD. I'm a mover and a shaker and a fidgeter. So that never really made sense. Even when like I was an egotistical college student, just thinking about myself, like how do I learn? So like, it's yeah. Thank God but, we debunked that right. one. I think a lot of <laughs> a lot of that really comes back to that like binary way of thinking. You're either this or you're this rather than and both, right? So okay. we're kind of thinking of how do we dismantle that whole idea because it's not either or, it's not that separated. So the another misconception that I'll get pushed back a lot is it's really messy and chaotic. I do not want to send tray. I don't want to be pulling out the shaving foam. I don't want chaos where kids are just running around exploring everything. And it's also not that. <laughs> Multi-sensory learning can still be within included in a shared classroom, but it's in a creative way where kids have access to experience it in multiple ways to deepen understanding, to deepen that comprehension of what's going on 
in a test. There's so many classrooms, even when you think about like years we sat in university or high school, it's very much stand and deliver. It's here's my PowerPoint. I'm going to read the PowerPoint slides. You're going to walk away and you're going to study. And then you're going to come back and write this <laughs> exam and pass or fail. That's it's the stand and deliver method. But when oh. you think of lots of different spaces in learning and education where we have science labs or we have math manipulatives, watch and look around the room and see how many people are actually engaged in yeah. it. There's this sort of motivation to figure it out, to solve a problem, to get creative with the understanding of it. So can you use a sand tray in printing letters? Sure. Yeah. Lots of kids hate it because it's a sensory issue. Yeah. So keeping in mind multi-sensory or multimodal learning doesn't always mean that you have to just pull a sand tray out and make a disaster of your learning space. And Hannah, that's frankly why I started following you online because my little guy that has Down syndrome is, so I bought Linda Mae Bell lips because long story short, I'm not even gonna say why, but I bought it. And I trained myself. I bought the additional things to go through the training to become actually certified to do it. And I was like eight hours into it and thought, this will never work for him. And if I had 25 students that I had tutored at his at or near his reading level prior to working with him, I could have adapted it for those very reasons. Something's not a sensory thing. In Jack's case, he doesn't have the body awareness. He doesn't have the motor planning to, to feel what his mouth is doing and to feel his vocal cords and that kind of stuff. So that's, that does not make any difference to him at all. How can I get him access to it in some other way? But Linda Mood Bell, Lips in particular, is so body awareness centric that I was like, I can't modify this without more experience. So I think you raise a really good point about, and like for my audience out there, I think the takeaway from this is it is really important to have practitioners, tutor, teachers, therapists that have a lot of actual training and exploration and experience. Yeah. Because otherwise you can't modify based on a child's unique profile. And we're all unique. Right. Yeah, exactly. And it does come back to that either or, right? It's not one, like the way the brain learns to read is one way, but the approach of giving the information, we all are going to bring our creative spin to it. Yeah. And now, and when we can look at what science is showing us about the including a few different, it's not saying we're including all the modalities at once. That's sensory overload for lots of kids. So we're still, yeah. like you're saying, we're still checking in to be like, would you like to try <laughs> this or that? So right. some less messy ways that I like, I'm actually going to be showing a reel later this week about there's an overlay that you can put right on top of your iPad device. You could put it on a phone, an iPad, anywhere that you have a tablet even, and it's, it won't wreck your iPad. It won't wreck your device. And it's got tiny little bumps, like very tiny. So as you're printing a letter, it's giving some tactile feedback about this is how the letter feels when you print it on a page. So when I print the letter S, I'm curving this way, and then I'm going to curve back the other way. And as they're experiencing that, all of those little receptors in their fingers are giving important information to the brain. And so sometimes there's also in science, there's also something called proprioceptive feedback. 
And it's really that muscle memory of learning something and having the feedback of those sensory pieces in your body, experiencing it, and it puts it into memory. It creates this little space of that's the way it is. Here it is. I just felt it just the same way, like in sports, when we redo a play over and over again, or we rehearse a certain movement in ballet or in hockey or something, we're creating that muscle memory. Printing is creating real fine motor muscle memory of those symbols that are representing our sounds in language. So as we're decoding and encoding. And just a little further geek out. So this is why we should play executive, we should play games and do sports and do activities that strengthen our executive function. Because if you're doing ballet, you're developing that muscle memory, which is going, because you can dance, you can memorize the dance without thinking about it, or you can sing a song without thinking about the words. Those are the skills that we need in order to become strong. Yeah. This is why we do nursery rhymes and all of the things. People don't know why we do them. (laughs) It's rehearsing those skills so that become masterful at them. Yeah. Proficient, able to do them. And when somebody, I wanted to interject something to somebody the other day said, yeah, but our goal is to that kids will love reading. And I was like, I hate to break it to you. (laughs) My goal as an educator is not that they will love reading. Yes. My goal is that they can read. They do not have to pick up any book and fall in love with the story and be like, I enjoy reading. Sure. But not sometimes it's just that we have to get the skill to access more information or to learn how to drive or to read a recipe to cook or that's it. That's it. What do you love about reading? Do you love being able to cook? Or do you love like sitting in a, in your window box, whatever you call those, like windowsill pads with cozy blanket, like you're in a Meg Ryan movie. I don't think there's a ton of us. I am one of those people, but I don't think there's a ton of us that really love that. But there are plenty of people that are like, oh, that was cool. I could order for myself off this menu because I know what I can do. Like we can all have a different relationship with reading or with anything in our lives, honestly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I think another misconception I wrote down too was also that it's only for, you fill in the blank, kids. Multisensory learning is only for dyslexic kids, or it's only for kids with Down syndrome, or it's only for kids with whatever. And really, it's we now know that it's for all learners. And a lot of what has brought great reading strategies and skills and the importance of structured and explicit instruction did come from looking at kids who were really like, like a dyslexic child who was really struggling with lots of the reading knowledge. And then, oh, those are the same pieces that everybody's brain has to learn how to do. So if you're thinking about like in a classroom situation or even a small group, it's benefiting everybody, not just air quote, those kids, right? So, So the benefits of integrating some of those multimodal, multi-sensory learning pieces is that it's really engaging multiple parts of the brain. So they're activating and it's when multiple parts of your brain are activated, it increases memory recall, processing, comprehension, the synthesizing of information, the kind of connecting the dots. We're really understanding that there's this, oh, I was thinking about like neuroplasticity, right? This ability that we have in the brain to like literally change the structure of our brain 
And if we experience it only, if I said to you, okay, I want you to change a tire on your car and I'm just going to tell you how to do it. You might, because you said earlier that you had really great auditory information intake. And then I said, okay, and then here's a three troubleshooting said in case that doesn't, and I just kept shooting information at you. And at some point it's too much. Yep too much information, even if you're really good at auditorily in taking information, it would be more beneficial if I could now show you a video with the explanation and maybe even made it quite broken down into step one, you're going to do this. Step two, you're going to do this. Step three, you're able to pause the video, watch and listen, but you still might have some issues. If I came alongside of you and I said, I've now explained it to you. You've heard it. We've watched the video together. We've talked about it. We've worked through some maybe extra questions because there was some additional background information that you didn't have about a car or tools or something like that. And now I sit and do it with you. All of those ways that we've just embedded that information for you make it more successful. So rather than you making a hundred mistakes along the way, you're going to make less mistakes And you're going to remember it a little bit better for the next time because we integrated some of those pieces. So that's like a big world example. But if I take it now to printing, what we know that kids who are good at spelling are great at reading. We know that kids who are great at reading aren't always great at spelling. Yeah. So it's the opposite of what we used to tell, say, the more books that you just read through, you're going to be an excellent speller. I have not seen that in most kids. No, but the kids who are really good at spelling recognize those little spelling patterns in thousands of words. So if I can, first of all, teach them, this is what the the word is. We're going to talk about the word dog. Let's say, what sounds do you hear in the word dog? And I want them to, here's a little kinesthetic piece. We can tap on our fingers, each of the sounds that we hear in the word dog. And I want to get the same answer with them. So I'll say the word dog and they repeat dog. First of all, we want to make sure we're on the same page. And then I'll say, let's tap the sounds in dog. We're going to tap just by hearing, saying, tapping those sounds. I know they've told their brain the correct information. So I can give thousands of examples of watching my student go to spell the word smart and they will spell SART because they didn't say the sounds, they didn't hear that there was a consonant blend. Yep. So they forgot that second consonant totally. And I will say, now read what your word is on the paper and they'll read SART. And I'll say, what was our word? And they'll say, oh, smart. And I'll be like, what's missing? And they, if we have not tapped that very physical feedback information to our brains of feeling it, saying it, hearing it, they forget they don't add it in there because it wasn't something they told their brain. So I'd use some of those examples to when I'm kids is really, we're going to stop and think about our thinking. And then we want to give our brain, literally give our brain the answer. Yeah. So by experiencing it, they're giving their brain the right answer so that they put down the right S-M-A-R-T for the word smart rather than forgetting one of the consonants. So I think for the A. Because go back and beat the dead horse. Yeah. We have to teach the rule about the bossy R in order to get AR as the er in the middle of smart. And so 
going back to like only teaching those 26 letter sounds, if we only teach the 26 letter sounds and we don't teach the idea, the concept of the basiar, as most of us call it, then we aren't going to get how to spell smart. And how many times, how many words have a weird R in them? Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's really what it's all about. I think the misconceptions really help to explain. That's probably a better way, honestly, to explain how the science of reading actually works in practice as opposed to going line by line. I wonder if it's a follow-up. What One thing that I see that my clients struggle with a lot is choosing the right program. So you talked about like different criteria for programs. I see this all the time where it's of course purchased a certain curriculum and they're, they've got certain people trained in them and one teacher has a full caseload. And so they're like secretly they're saying Wilson would work best, but Our Wilson teacher is totally full. So let's do Mars or something that's like totally off. What the heck is Mars? And maybe you could talk just a little bit about when a school's trying to sell a program, even if it is a multi-sensory program, what should parents be looking for? And how do you get past the marketing materials to actually see if the program is going to be good? So I think some of the things are you have to understand some of the science of reading information, right? So as an informed, just like if you and I were going to go and buy a new pair of glasses, I want to make sure, oh, what is blue light? Oh, there's something blue. Okay. I need to look in, investigate a little bit more about what is blue light. Oh, I need, I've got a really strong prescription. So I'm going to need a lightweight frame because I do not want ridges on my nose and behind my ears because it's so heavy. Something I have to know the shape of my face. That certain frame looks funny on me or I can't see if it's too when that all the glasses went super shallow <laughs> and you're like I see the frame I don't want to see the frame like that yeah I am literally a minus 14 so these I wear contacts with glasses on top most of the day but I have four options and when those stupid glasses came out I was like I don't know I, I, like do you have any from the 80s because <laughs> <laughs> the ones where you smile and you almost push your glasses up because they're resting on your cheeks. So and you should put a sticker on them. Right. Remember when I put a sticker on them? Yeah. So we're investigating. Exactly. Purchasing. I it's love insane. that analogy. I it's love insane, that. Right? Yep. So we're yeah. going to investigate when I'm looking at this, I'm going to look at some specific words, right? I'm looking at the, and they're not buzzwords, right? We're not saying that, oh, Structured literacy is this cute noodle, new little term. It's literally based on evidence, evidence right. from science of how yeah. our brain reads. So we're looking for a scope and sequence. We want to be able to give kids the most efficient way to access the code of those sounds and those spelling patterns as timely as possible. So we want to look at it. Does it have a specific scope and sequence? Is it building on that past knowledge? So that's the cumulative piece. Some people really want like a little script. So like the UFLY program, for example, right? It has so many free resources. First of all, on the website, there's like hundreds of free resources there. And it has a literal script. Like first you will say this, next you will say this, then you'll, and some people, especially when you're beginning, they feel like quite comfortable, comforted because they're like, wow, I just didn't know how do I hold the card or how do I, where do they don't even know what their mouth is supposed to be doing. Yeah. So I also think some of those, if there's some additional training 
that goes with the program and they could really suss it out to be able to, I have to have not just the knowledge or from a book. I also have to have the knowledge of like, how am I putting that into practice? So the thinking of, is it aligned with the science of reading in explicit instruction, systematic and cumulative, and then stay away from things when at any time it's going to say that's we're going to help them memorize that word. Or we're going to, here's the list for them to be tested on this, this week. You're thinking, okay, let me just dive into that a little bit more because we don't learn words as a whole. We learn them as each of their specific parts, even though that word is committed to memory as a sight word, that's different than a high frequency word. And here's another spot where I always want to give like a little bit of information to a sight word and a high frequency word are not necessarily the same thing. So a high frequency word can become a sight word. A sight word is basically a word we know by sight. We can retrieve it effortlessly, like a nanosecond, and we're like, boom, that's the word the. I don't have to put sounds together. But that word the is a high frequency word because it's seen so often in print. The word the is also an irregularly spelled high frequency word. And I think that's where, again, that whole language and balanced literacy really another epic fail example was we were just giving the dolt word list to kids on a little ring and saying, please memorize these and you're going to be a good reader rather than pulling out from that, the pre-primer list or whatever, and saying, which words actually go together because they have a similar sound pattern. Um, Like I can pull all of those words and those are all phonetically able to be decoded. They have the letter sounds correspond and match, but the word the doesn't. So how do we teach those irregularly spelled high frequency words? And there's a great website called Really Great Reading, and they walk you through a whole bunch of those really irregularly spelled words that are those high frequency words and an explicit way to teach them. And they call it the heart word method, where they're literally, you go through each of the sounds in the word and you map which letters match the sound based on what we know. So in the word, the only part of the word that is irregular is the, the TH can make that noisy sound at the beginning of the, and the E is just irregularly, we don't normally spell the sound with the letter E. So they put a little heart over that. And within four to five times of practicing that in the same session, and then the next day you review that same word, and the next day we're gonna repeat it again, just like when you go to skating lessons, you they will have it way faster than if I just said, okay, T-H-E, that's the word that, ready? Okay, next Friday, we're having a test on reading T-H-E. And you're just trying to shove that information in your brain. So it's, a again, it's thinking, how did it teach that? The other thing that I think is really, I want to blow this myth out of the water as well, is that science of reading is not just phonics. Remember, um, science yeah. of reading is the body of evidence. Yeah. So structured literacy is also not just phonics. Right. Phonics is an important piece, but so is oral language. So is phonological and phonemic awareness. Phonics is in there, fluency, vocabulary, comprehension. All of those pieces are what we need to be literate people. Yeah, yeah. So playing with language, a language-rich environment, playing with language, understanding language, having the experiences, all of those things that we do for preschoolers are really important foundational skills. 
for reading and then become really important components of actual reading the older that yep. kids get. That is, wow, we, that was so fun. <laughs> Tell people how they can find you. Your Instagram is among my top 10 favorite Instagrams. <laughs> so I'm on Instagram at my literacy space. And that's where I'm most active. And then every single week I send out a newsletter to my email subscribers and I will share a structured literacy tip for the week. I'll share a picture book always for the week that might have, and I'll show you either how to use it or some ways that I'm using it or what I love about that picture book. I'll share a free website. I've got resources on Teachers Pay Teachers where I'm creating structured literacy activities for kids to be doing. And I really, I think like the big thing about that multi-sensory learning too, is it's building that background knowledge that we can bring into that structured way. So I do a lot through play and it is because we're experiencing language. So joke telling or building that vocabulary, multi multiple meanings, or we're playing with today on Wednesdays, I share word nerd Wednesday. And today I was talking about portmanteaus, which are those words that are Two words combined, not like a compound word, but like sitcom, that situational comedy. And we've broken it together as sitcom. Some of those kids love that as a kind of a fun activity. Did you know that Pokemon meant a pocket monster? And they're like, what? I thought Pokemon was like a made up word. And you're like, so I think that also makes literacy really fun if we can bring some of that really cool information to kids, it makes them want to keep coming back. And that's part of the intrinsic motivation when we can kind of play with words and understand how our, our language has evolved. So those are places that so I like. Cool. Yeah. So cool. I have a couple of friends that I just like to sit and listen to. There's this guy, he was a football coach in our little town and he went to an Ivy League school. He's really smart and he's really passionate and he does a great job for kids with struggles. And like, I just love to sit and listen to him talk. And so I'm always like, will you just be a guest bartender and tell stories? And I'm just going to sit here and listen to you. And I think this Pokemon thing and sitcom, I never knew that either. And I love words. I just want to sit and listen to you. Tell us, I'm going to be like, Hannah, tell me something weird. Gosh, it's so cool. I like super duper weirded out by that. Okay. So I have my last question. You just rocked my world, but I wanted to know where the pile of junk is in your house, because you have, you've talked about creativity a hundred times. You'll do stuff with an egg carton or like <laughs> spider rings or something like you must live at the dollar store or something, but how organized you are back there. I'm like, where are the cookie sheets? Where is that? So I am very organized, but in my creative space in this office, I'll show you. Ready? Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. okay. There it is. <laughs> That's in creation mode, right? So these are like, oh, I'm going to create with that. Oh, I'm going to create. But my, my family teases me all the time before they throw any packaging away. They're always like, would you, could you use this maybe? And I'm always like, let me think about that. I might be able to. <laughs> I knew there was a pile of junk somewhere because right behind oh. this office. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's great. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. This has been awesome. Thank you for having me. It was lovely to chat.